You're listening to Summit Podcasts, where you'll find sermon audio, weekly discussions of the message, the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and much, much more. Subscribe today at summitpodcast.church and share this episode with your friends. Summit Church, every life made different. All right, good morning, Summit Church. Good to have you here. Last weekend of the year, big shout out to our Blairsville campus and our online campus joining us today. Thanks again for being here. If we haven't met for whatever reason before, my name's Gilbert, I'm the youth pastor here at the Indiana campus, and I'm excited to talk to you um, about some things that have been praying for us just as a church uh, the last couple weeks. Um, but in order for me to start off my message today, I have to break a little bit of the fourth wall between like pastor and church congregation for a moment, right? So <laughs> one of the things they teach you in uh, like Bible college or really in any public speaking class is to start off whatever you're talking about with some kind of relatable story, right? And what this does is it connects you to your audience, makes everyone feel comfortable. And then whatever you have to say next is a little bit more easily understood because you feel like you know the person that's presenting the information. So that's something that every pastor does pretty much ever, or pretty much any pastor that is kind of good at what they do, they should be doing that, right? Sometimes they don't, they just go right into it and it feels a little abrupt. but that's usually what most everyone does. And so I prepped this message, I developed my little intro thing that I was gonna go into, and then unintentionally, total by accident, totally by accident, this week, I fell face first into a significantly better intro story that I now pivoted as of like literally Saturday morning. I was like, oh, I have to use this. Uh, But it's not for like a good reason. It's kind of because of a stupid reason, specifically my stupidity. So if any of you out there this morning are like do-it-yourselfers around the house, you do home projects and you try to fix things, but you're kind of bad at it, this one's for you. I'm looking at you this morning, right? This This is the camp I found myself in this week. So backstory and some context. Every, every December, at the end of December, between the 25th and the first of the year, I take time off from work. It's been something I've done for the last probably seven or eight years. I just don't do any work then. Um, and granted, the weekend services kind of interrupt that a little bit, so I find other spots right around it, right? So I always come to the service, but I'll take some time off right before and right after just to make sure that I, I get like a full five or six days of rest within that. And I found that it's just generally been a really, really good thing for me. One, it makes me feel a lot more ready for the next year, but also two, if I'm being honest, I do some really bad work in those five days after Christmas, right? Some of you have been on Instagram, you know what those reels are between like December 26th and December 30th. You don't really know what the day is. You've just been eating a lot of leftover, a lot of cheese, right? A lot of pie. You're kind of like a little bit of a stupor and I know you're not doing your best work at work, 100%. I know that at max, you're probably hitting 65% of work efficiency this week. Don't lie to me. I know you're like that too, right? So I just say, I'm gonna take this time off. I'm not gonna do anything uh, this, this specific week because I'm useless just honestly to the church in general during that time. So I'm taking time off. So I took the time off. I celebrated Christmas with my wife's family. We celebrated the day after with my family. And on the night of the 26th, I said to Steph as we were coming home from Butler, I was like, you know what? There's a couple little things that I want to do in the bathroom. Just a couple, couple little things that if I do now will save me so much more time next week when I'm off of my little restcation thing, my little vacation, that will make me just a little bit more prepared. So for those of you that have done drywall work before, you'll understand this uniquely. Um, when you put drywall up, um, like tearing down the old and putting up the new and mudding the first coat is like 90% of the work. Because every other thing that you do is you come back the next day 
you do five or 10 minutes more of mudding to spread out the line and make it blend a little bit nicer. And then you wait a day, you come back and do five or 10 more minutes. Eventually at the end of four or five days, you do a light coat of sanding, wet sanding, bing, bang, boom, you can paint it and you're done, right? So I said to myself, I'm gonna do this in the bathroom and I just need to do a real, real little bit in this specific area, so I'm just gonna do it. And I did it, it took me like two hours and I felt amazing. I was like, great, no, like, no, I feel rested, I still feel good. And then I made a mistake. Um, I was like Icarus and flew maybe a little too close to the sun. And I thought, you know what, I, that went so well, maybe I should just do a little bit more. And, and I said to myself, you know, we have, we wanted to retile our bathroom for a while. Right, some of you know where this is going. Uh, and, and here's why, like if you've ever been to our house, it's a three bedroom, one bath uh, house here in the borough. And whoever did the bathroom before us was really inspired by like Olive Garden because they ordered like those Tuscan Italian tiles that like feel kind of like a knockoff Italy or something like that. Like the Aldi brand Italy is what it feels like. They're like, let's make it feel like you're using the toilet in Rome. And it wasn't really done very well. It was a little bit, a little bit rough, honestly. But I was like, we just, we don't like this. I don't like feeling like I should be smelling breadsticks while I'm using the bathroom. It just is kind of a weird visual, like, you know, what is it? Smelling olfact. It's just a weird, weird experience. So I was like, let's get it out of here. And I said to myself, if I could just pull out the old tile and just know what I'm looking at on the floor, know if I need some cement backing, right? To like be able to put down new tile, to know like what I need. It'll just, it'll just help me feel like I have a better game plan next week. And so it took me two hours, pulled out all the tile. And when it came to the toilet, this is where everything went horribly, horribly, horribly wrong. So have you guys, do you guys remember the old um, Hercules movie, Disney movie? Like the 90s cartoon one, right? If you haven't seen it, um, it's really good actually. It's one of my favorite Disney movies. If, if, you, if you see it, there's one part in the, like towards the middle of the movie where Hercules is kind of rising to fame in the community and people are starting to celebrate him and praise him and recognize him for his strengths. And as part of like the villain's trick, tricks, he gets baited into a specific fight with like this lizard dragon thing called a Hydra. And so he shows up, he fights this thing. I think the thing actually eats him initially and he cuts it, the head off from inside. Like he gets like eaten and like in the neck, he like pulls out a sword and cuts its head off, which has to be probably the coolest thing that Disney has ever animated in a kid's movie, right? Like just cutting it out from inside the neck and he falls out and he kind of is like stumbling away with his trainer, Phil, and all of a sudden the, the lizard starts to shake and it stands up and two heads shoot out and now he's fighting Hydra with two heads and then he cuts off another head and another two pop out and he ends up getting towards the end of the fight and there's all of these heads that are attacking him and trying to kill him and it's this whole big crazy thing. That's exactly what it felt like with the toilet. Let me tell you, exactly what it felt like with the toilet. And I'm not gonna bore you with the nuance of indoor plumbing because let me tell you, not only did it eat up a lot of time, it was incredibly boring and I didn't know what I was doing. Like I haven't worked with plumbing in that way, but it felt like, oh, I take off the toilet and the, the, the pipe underneath that had the, the flange attached absolutely just crumbled in my hands. It crumbled to rusted dust. And then I had to go to the store and buy something. And I came back and it was the wrong part, part. So I went back and bought a different part. And then I came back and fixed that. And I was like, oh wait, there's two or three other things I need to fix. Like it just felt like things were multiplying. And what was initially about four hours worth of work ended up being close to like 18. So... I am, uh, I am not very, very relaxed this week. This was a little bit of a stressful week for me. And uh, Mel and Kim, if you're watching, I'm putting in a vacation day request for Tuesday because I, I just need actually some time to rest and not be worrying about, worrying about my bathroom. Uh, but the good news is this. As of 10 o'clock last night, 
Um, I got the last part I needed to be able to fix the toilet, and we now have a working toilet in the Ackerman household. Isn't that great? It's good news. Thank you for applauding my incompetence. I appreciate that. I feel very, very loved here today. Yeah, so I will, I will not be wanting to mess with indoor plumbing for a very long time uh, moving forward. But anyways, all that to say, my expectation of this week was specifically to rest. And I wanted to be able to relax and disengage and just enjoy the week. Do what I want, have some freedom, have some flexibility. And it didn't quite go my way. And I know, I know I don't maybe know you that well personally. I know some of you, I don't know all of you, right? But I know that you've absolutely been in a similar spot to me where you've had expectations that something would be restful and something would feel uh, recharging and refreshing. And it just, it just didn't go that way, right? I've talked to some of you who are parents of young children, right? And I've, I've known some of you who are like, hey, you know, I have like two or three young kids and we're taking them to the beach for the very first time. And I'm like, oh, that sounds fun. And you're excited for it. And you come back a week later, dad is sunburnt. Mom hasn't slept in three days. And the kids are just kind of like crazed little gremlins running around. I'm like, how was your vacation? Like, it was terrible. It was just like a bunch of running around and the kids wouldn't sleep and this and that, right? You have this expectation that something's going to be restful and it doesn't actually end up being restful. And that's the nuance that I want to talk about here this morning is I want to talk about rest. Now, in order for me to talk about rest, I have to qualify what I am not talking about with rest, right? Because rest is a multifaceted kind of conversation that not just has, that just doesn't have spiritual implications, but there's a lot of other kinds of implications, right? There's such a thing as physical rest. So if some of you are like me and you drink way too much caffeine and you don't sleep well at night because you don't drink, you drink too much caffeine, you wake up the next morning and what? You, you, you feel unrested because you had too much caffeine or when the meadows is open and you're like, I'm going to have my third large, was not, not flurry. What's the name of it? Swirl, right? Swirl this week. And you're like, oh, I kind of feel gross the next day, right? It's because you're just eating too much ice cream, right? There's a degree of physical rest, but I don't want to talk about that specific kind of thing today. I don't want to talk about mental rest exactly, um, which for some of you who are dealing with some very difficult problems to solve, either like financially or at your work, and you're like, I don't know how to make these pieces come together. <laughs> we could talk about mental rest and being able to like unplug fully and not think about things, right? That was kind of what my week was this week. It was less physically demanding and more mentally demanding because again, every problem I solved, two or three more popped up and I had to figure out how to solve those in kind of a little bit of a jank way because I don't really know what I'm doing. And I'm not also talking about emotional rest, which is maybe being able to step away and feel a sense of peace and relaxation and kind of escape some of the the emotional stresses of your home or of work or of school, I want to talk about spiritual rest. I want to talk about the deepest layer of rest possible because I would argue based off of at least my reading of scripture that there is a deeper layer of rest than all of those things, than physical, mental, and emotional. There's a deeper core to it. And if we can hit that as followers of Christ, if we can experience that, we will experience so much more in our walk with God. And here's how I come to that conclusion that we, that we were designed this way. If you read the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible, the first two chapters, you see God creates the whole universe, everything in a moment, right? Just in one word, the whole universe comes into being and he makes the plants, the land, the sea, the fish and the birds, the sky, the earth. He makes all these beautiful things. And at the end, he makes humanity as kind of his crown jewel of creation. And then what? He rests, doesn't do anything. Now, it's not because God was tired 
God doesn't, he's not limited by that kind of uh, limiter in his life, right? Like that he doesn't experience the, the universe or the, the, the things around him in that way. He rested as a model to us on how we're supposed to engage and operate in our life. We were designed and made with the understanding that we should experience deep and full, relaxing rest. But how do we find rest? Rest is sometimes really elusive. You've definitely had times where I know you've said, hey, this will be really restful, this will feel good for me. You go and you do it and you go, I don't know if that really hit what I was hoping for, right? You might have gone on the vacation, you might be physically, mentally, and emotionally well-rested and feeling good, but deep at your core, you look at your life and go, man, I still feel kind of restless. I still feel like a little on edge. I'm not exactly sure why that is. Why, is it, why does it feel like something's maybe misaligned or some kind of discontentment within me? What is it that I'm wrestling with here? And why don't I feel rest? That's the kind of rest I want to talk to you about today. So in order for us to talk about that, we're going to dive into the New Testament, specifically a book called Matthew. But before I, before I analyze and unpack these verses with you, I want to set the table um, with what we're going to hear. Because if you understand the cultural context and pressures of the day, Jesus' words make a lot more sense in light of that. So here's what you need to do, know about Matthew. Ready? So Matthew is one of the first four Gospels of the New Testament. If you open up the New Testament, bam, first book of the Bible is, Ma or first book of the New Testament, excuse me, is Matthew, followed by Mark, Luke, and John. And as a student, I had kind of a low resolution understanding of what those four gospels were. I thought they were just foretellings of people that saw the life of Jesus and what they thought about the life of Jesus, almost like a, uh, almost like if a, a, like a crime happened and you were with a friend and you saw someone steal something, right? The cops would show up, they'd take like your, as the witness, they'd take what you saw and be like, okay, what did you see? Okay, what did you see? And they'd write it down. That's kind of how I viewed the Gospels. Like, oh, these are just four people that saw what Jesus did and they wrote it down. But that's not how ancient literature is often structured. It's not structured. We have like a very different way of structuring um, our thoughts and I, our ideas and our stories. And they had a very different almost like genre in how they would do it. So these four accounts are not just four people observing the life of Jesus, but they are written in a specific way to identify and connect with a specific audience. Now with Matthew, it's important to note that he was a Jewish guy writing to the Jews. He was a Jewish man writing to the Jews. And with that understanding, he was trying to paint Jesus in the image or with the understanding of being the Messiah that fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies. Um, so in the book of Mark, if you read it, it's really fast paced in its action and Jesus is doing this and this and this and this and he's going and he's doing and he's doing and he's going and it's just again and again and again, that's all what Mark is. But Matthew slows things down and he pulls out a little bit more detail for you and at the beginning you're going to see all these like genealogies, it's going to list like the lineage of Jesus, it's going to say Jesus who was born to this person, born to this person, you're like why does this even matter? Well, because to the Jews and their culture, they believed the Messiah was a descendant of the line of David. And Matthew, as the author, was really trying to say, hey, this is not just a made-up thing. This is not just Jesus entered the scene and wasn't fulfilling those prophecies, but he fulfilled the lineage expectations of the Messiah. He just didn't look like the Messiah that you thought he was, because the Jews at the time then, and even modern-day Jews now, expect the Messiah to be a political savior to be a revolutionary, to be someone that establishes Israel in the here and now in a very politically powerful way. But Jesus showed up on the scene, right? Not to set them free politically, but to set them free and to set us free spiritually. 
Now, here's a fun little piece of Bible trivia for you. If you care about it, if you don't care about it, you should care about it because Bible trivia is kind of fun, right? But okay, so here's what we know about Matthew. Um, in the New Testament, the, the term kingdom of heaven is used 32 times, 32 times. And all 32 of those times are specifically found in the book of Matthew. Why is that? Everywhere, everywhere else is called the kingdom of God, but in, in Matthew, it's called the kingdom of heaven. The reason for that is because the Jews hold the name of God in such reverence that they don't feel like they have the permission to say it. And so they say words kind of around that name because they don't want to be disrespectful, right? So an example of this in modern day America is um, if Donald Trump or Joe Biden walked in here, right? And I don't know your political affiliation. I don't want to know. This isn't a conversation about politics, but if either one of them entered in here and you're like, hey, what's up, Donnie? Good to see you, Joey. It would probably feel a little out of pocket. You know what I'm saying? It'd be like, this is a little, you probably should have a little more reverence. Like they're both presidents. You probably just shouldn't refer to them so casually as their first name, right? There's kind of an element of respect that comes with that position that you would want to say. That's how they view the name of God, right? Like, hey, we're not going to disrespect him by using his name that, that way. Let's like, you know, be careful how we write this, how we allude to it. And so Matthew, again, as a Jew writing to the Jews, didn't want to offend that social and religious taboo, really wanted to show Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promise to us in the Old Testament prophecies. So that's kind of like a fun little, fun little thing for you to keep in the back of your mind. Now, in this story, the book of Matthew, it, like every good story, there's a protagonist and an antagonist, right? So the protagonist is Jesus. The antagonist is a group of people called the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees' worldview is important for us to hold in mind as we read these verses because their worldview would have very much been in the minds of each and every single one of the people listening. The people listening that Jesus was teaching to would have been very familiar with them, would have understood their teachings, would have understood the expectations. And the Pharisees held this religious worldview that we are being punished by God because we haven't followed his rules closely enough. Right? We are being punished by God because we haven't followed his rules closely enough. Um, so if you study the story of Israel, Israel rose to a time of prominence in like 1000 BC, like even non-religious historians agree with that for like a brief period. They were kind of a, a religious, or not a religious, a, uh, a world superpower. They sat in a very nice spot in the ancient Middle East with a lot of trade routes and some very just powerful geographical things to help them in times of battle. Um, but what happens is Israel, if you read it, has this back and forth thing where it follows God and then it falls away from God, and eventually it leads to captivity, and so they get taken over by the Assyrians, and, and then they get taken over by the Babylonians, and then they get taken over by the Greco, like the Greco-Roman world. At that point, it was the Romans, right? Took over them and ruled them. And the Pharisees viewed their state as um, being oppressed by, by the Roman government. They viewed that as punishment from God. And they're like, if we just obey God's laws enough, he's gonna set us free. But if you're not gonna do that, if we're not gonna do this as a community, then we're not gonna see freedom. And so there is this extreme awareness of what you were doing, why you were doing it, and the guilt associated with what you were doing. And it was like, oh, it's not just your sin is your sin, your sin is keeping us as Israel oppressed by the, by the Romans, and so you need to stop, and you need to make sure that you're pure, and you need to make sure that you follow all the several hundred laws about how to honor God, and if you don't, your, your culture and your society and your people group are gonna make you feel all this incredible shame and guilt, right? That was the way that they understood things. And so with that in mind, take that information, slide it onto a shelf in your head, just for a moment. We're gonna pull that book off the shelf here in a moment. Let's read through what Jesus has to say to this group of people that would have been familiar with the Pharisees' teachings. Now, I'm going to read all three of them for you, and then we're going to go through and we're going to break down each one 
verse by verse. Here's what it says, Matthew 28 through 30. Then Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, let me teach you, because I am gentle at, at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Okay, break it down verse by verse here. Verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Now, I, in order for me to analyze this, I have to go into a little bit of like an English language linguistics study for a moment. So I'm going to do my very best not to bore you, right? Some of you, like I just saw the, the glaze pass over your eyes when I said language. You're like, oh gosh, I hated English class in high school. I'm going to do my very best, very best not to make this boring for you, but just roll with me for a second, okay? So when you read these words, um, come to me all who are weary um, and carry heavy burdens. So when I read that, weary and heavy burdens feel similar to me. It feels like Jesus is just saying the same thing twice, at least to me when I read it. And it feels kind of similar to what uh, teachers would do whenever they really want you to remember something in school. They repeat it, right? They say it a lot. Now, for Jesus at his time, he would have done ministry primarily in rural places where they would have had less access to really good formalized education. They would have remembered a lot of things verbally, not just written down, right? We have a lot of things written down or even videos, like things that we can reference. They would have remembered things verbally. And I'm thinking, is this just a, a trick to help the people remember what Jesus is saying because he's saying it in two different ways? But that actually isn't the case. It's not just a um, uh, kind of flowery sentence here, but he means both of these words very intentionally. When you take the word, come to me all who are weary, right? You know what it means to be weary. You know what it means to be tired. You know what it means to be carrying guilt and shame and stress and to be looking at the world around you and just being like, I feel so tired, right? Sometimes I go into the gym in the morning and my gym has like news channels randomly on. Like they have like Sports Center and then they have like random news things. I'm like, I can't even stand in front of this news TV. This is gonna make me weary thinking about politics. Like I don't even wanna go anywhere near it, right? You don't need me to tell you what it means to be weary because some of you in here today, some of you watching online, some of you in Blairsville, feel weary. You came in here feeling tired. You came in here feeling like, man, I just kind of feel exhausted, feel run down, I feel drained. And then in the, in the Greek, this word weary is in the active tense. Okay, active tense means this. You, as the person, are the one who's the subject of the verb. So I kick is the active tense, right? I'm the one doing the, the verb. Um, passive tense is I am being kicked, right? You're receiving the action of the verb. And what's interesting is even though it's not translated this way in English, if you look at the Greek, weariness is active and carry heavy burdens is actually passive. A more accurate translation of this is those who are being burdened. Interesting. Doesn't translate as well into English. Now, why does this matter? You're probably thinking, Gilbert, why, why in the world does this even matter? What's the nuance with this? Well, what I would what I would argue to you is this, is that when we look at some of the language of the Bible and we pair it with our historical understanding of what the world was like, we have a greater awareness of what Jesus was saying and why he was saying it to that group of people. Now, here's the thing. Anytime you study history, anytime you look at that, your your ability to comment on that within scripture is only so good as one, your understanding of history, and two, our general understanding of history, right? We're learning new things every day about the ancient world. So what I'm saying even now, in 10 years, we may look back and be like, oh, this is actually probably a little bit more what it, what it would have meant. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise to you what I think Jesus was trying to say intentionally to the group of people based off the historical context of the people at that time. That was a mouthful. Did that make sense? 
Okay, great. I'm glad. So, um, in order for us to talk about that, we have to briefly shift from English and language to economics. So, I'm going to give you a little bit of some whiplash here, English economics. So, if you look at modern-day America in 2022, and you ask the question, what is the economic split between those who live between the poverty, below the poverty line, who are middle class, and those who are upper class? What does that number exactly look like? According to a 2022 study, the general numbers for this is about 10 to 12% below the poverty line, about 68 to 70% in the middle class, and 20% upper class. So for the sake of just having round numbers, can I generalize and say 10% below, 70% in the middle, 20% above, okay? That's our way of understanding modern day politics, or sorry, not politics, economics. If you look at the ancient Greco-Roman world, most historians, the strong majority of them, who are not even Christian. So if you're in this room and you're like, is this a Christian sound? I'm saying, no, this is just a historical fact, right? That 90% of the ancient Greco-Roman world would have lived below the poverty line. That's pretty significant. 7% middle class, 3% upper class. 90%. So if you have struggled at some point in your life of feeling like you're living below that poverty line or you're in that now or you have loved ones in it, you know the tension and the pressure of trying to get out of that, right? You know what it's like to live paycheck to paycheck, week to week. Back then, you would get paid in day's wages. So not even week to week or biweekly, you get paid by the day. So they would know what it was like to wake up and say, okay, where am I gonna find work today? Oh, great, I have work in the orchard this week. That's amazing, I have five days of income. Where am I gonna work next week? Hey, my, my, my fishing business that I have going isn't really doing well. I need to now pick up a second shift somewhere else doing something else in order to have enough money to feed my family. And the reason why they were in this state is because Rome, for one, was extract, extracting really heavy tithes and fees and taxes from the people. So this was not a people group that's just poor because they were poor. It's because the government that was oppressing them was taking a ton of funds from them. And they were feeling burdened. So I would argue this. I would argue that Jesus picked this word intentionally when he said those who are being burdened, the people who are listening would have immediately understood, oh yeah, I'm definitely being burdened. The government is absolutely, absolutely burdening me to the point where I can't, I, I, I don't know how to get out of this. Nine, so if there's 100 people in the room, 90%, 90% statistically would have felt that way. And what, what does Jesus say to them? If you're weary or you're carrying heavy burdens, I'm gonna give you rest. That's beautiful. Wait, that's, that's amazing. You know what the Pharisees said? The Pharisees would say, come to me all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I'm going to give you things you need to do. I'm going to give you laws that you have to follow in order to please God and in order for us to fix our present situation as a country. So if you're weary and heavy burdened, good, it's your fault. You need to work on that. And if you stay in that state, that's your fault, right? It's this very oppressive, harsh brutal response. But Jesus says, come to me and I'm going to give you rest. Now, here's a little bit of the catch. In the next line, Jesus double clicks on this thought and he expands it. He says, hey, it's not just, hey, I'm going to give you rest. It's just an exchange. You have burdens, bring them to me and I give you rest. Jesus expands on this idea immediately following in verse 29. And he says this, take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. So it's not just I will give you rest, it's you will find rest for your souls. What do you have to do to find rest for your souls? Two things linguistically here that stand out to me. Take my yoke upon you is the first one. 
Um, I'm guilty of this sometimes, maybe you are too. When I read the Bible, I sometimes read the words of Jesus as like uh, poetic or philosophical or like these grandiose statements that are just designed to make you think about life. But really, Jesus was a rabbi. He was a teacher. And the way that most rabbis taught at this time is they used very practical analogies and stories based off of real world living. So he was preaching again to mostly a rural area that would have existed with subsistence farming or fishing or whatever they could, right? Living, doing what they can provide for their family immediately with their little business or whatever they're, whatever they're able to grow for themselves. That's what they're able to eat. And he uses this analogy of yoke and he says, take my yoke upon you. This word take is in the imperative in Greek. It's not a suggestion. It's not an idea, right? It's not you. When you tell your kids, right? If you have kids in here and you say, go clean your room. Some of them take that as a suggestion, right? Some of them are like, yeah, yeah, I'll do, I'll do that maybe like tomorrow or something. Take out the trash. I mean, I, they did it. I, I did it last two times. It should be my brother's turn. No, 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 no. He's saying, hey, take my yoke upon you. And yoke is, yoke is a very real word that had real meanings. Again, it's not like philosophical or symbolic. It was tangible. It was real. And a yoke looks like this. Some of you are very familiar with what this looks like because you have farm animals. But a yoke is designed to take two oxen and put them together so that they can plow a field. And by their strength combined, they're able to plow up, like till up the field so you can plant seeds, you can um, keep it healthier, right? If you never till your field or anything like that, you know it can get very hard and compacted. But you have to do this every year in order to make the soil healthy and in, in order to be able to grow things. And so I find it interesting that Jesus says, hey, if you're weary or heavy burden, come to me so I can give you rest. Take this yoke, right? It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did Jesus say I was going to find rest? Doesn't yoke imply work? Yes, it does. That's the interesting thing. And now there's something within, within Gen Z that I find amazing. Again, I work with youth students, so I, I love their language. I love the way they think about the world. But something popped up like two years ago that was blank implies the existence of blank. Some of you are familiar with this. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. But it was this idea that within language, we specify things, maybe sometimes unnecessarily, and as a result, it implies the existence of something else. So if we say the term sworn nemesis, you're probably familiar with that, right? Someone's sworn nemesis. It implies the existence of a casual nemesis, right? Otherwise, you just have a nemesis. Like, not someone who's really out to kill you or anything like that. But like, I don't know, it's like Peggy from work drinking all your coffee creamer in the fridge. You're like, God, Peggy, come on, what are you doing? Quit. Or like, they, I don't know, like, like Bill messes up the sticky notes on your desk and you're like, what? why did he do that? Okay, I gotta go get new sticky notes from the office. Like not a big deal, but kind of a casual thing, right? Um, Minnie Mouse implies the existence of Massive Mouse. Horrifying, for those of you who are afraid of rodents. Horrifying, absolutely horrifying, right? So it's this idea that language implies the existence of something. And so what's interesting here is this word yoke absolutely implies work. And there's no way, there's no way around that. There's no way around that. So what we have here is we have, we have Jesus saying, if you want to find rest for your souls, you actually need to do some work. Now, let me be very clear here. This is not work to obtain salvation, because we can't do that. We're, we are very flawed and very broken. There's not a single thing I could do to ever earn my spot in heaven. It's only by Jesus's blood and forgiveness that I can access that. But it is saying that there's parts of our walk with God and our relationship with God that we might have limited access to because we are choosing to live life in a way that doesn't give him full control of our lives, right? So with a yoke, you're connected to that animal. And the beautiful thing about this is Jesus is not saying, just put a yoke on you. 
he's saying, take my yoke with the implication of Jesus being in the other side of it, right? It's not just him saying, get out there and do the work, but he's saying, I'm yoked to this thing, which is God's plan for his kingdom here on this earth, and I want you to be yoked to me so that we can accomplish God's plan. So here's the main idea. If you forget everything else I say here today, this is the main thing I want you to remember. It's this, that when we engage in God's work, we engage in God's rest. There are some parts of our our walk with God that we don't have access to because of our decisions, right? And he follows this up. He says the words, let me teach you. Again, this isn't a suggestion. This is written in the imperative tense in the Greek. This is a command. But God's saying, you have to give me access to teach you. Right? When we, wherever we're at in our faith walk, we never outgrow this. We have to give Jesus the permission to teach us and instruct us and tell us what to do. And that's a difficult thing, right? Because some of us want to have a relationship with God where it's casual and we just show up on a weekend and go to church and we're like, oh, that feels kind of good. I showed up and I feel a little bit better and we go home and do whatever we want to do. But really, when we give our lives to Jesus and we say, Jesus, I want to follow you as my Lord and Savior, we are jumping into that yoke. We're saying, Jesus, wherever you want to go, I'm going with you. We're going to plow this field together. We're going to work. And as a result of that, God gives us his rest. It's interesting. And what happens is if we don't align with that, we don't have access to, that, to God's rest here. Right? And he, he follows us up in, in verse 30. Um, this is what he says. He says, for my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. So he's saying, hey, listen, I know I'm giving you work. I know that wasn't the answer you probably wanted coming into church this morning or watching online, right? You're not thinking, oh, that's great. I wanted to come into work. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I feel like I have too many bills to pay, too many mouths to feed, and I'm working too many hours. And God's saying, you want rest? Here's some work. That's the the least encouraging thing that I feel like I could hear. But let me specify this, right? He says the words, "Um, my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Now, this word easy, easy, keroustos in Greek, It actually is best translated as good, useful, and productive. Good, useful, productive. In in the ancient Greco-Roman world, kerustas, right, a slight changing at the end there, was a proper noun. And it was a a really popular slave name for someone who would have slaves, right? So you'd have a slave, you'd call them kerustas because they were good, useful, and productive. And the, the Bible scholars who translate this believe that this is, this is best translated as easy, specifically in light of some of the former words, right? It also means easy, but it's a little bit more of a nuanced, uh, less popular translation of it. And the reason for that is because it's easy comparatively to other things. Here's an uncomfortable truth for all of us. Every single person that has ever lived is yoked to something. No matter how independent you think you are, No matter how competent you are doing your own thing, running your own life, making your own decisions, you're yoked to something. It could be finances, right? It could be riches. It could be making a lot of money. It could be um, control, right? It could be living life the way that you want to live your life. Like, hey, I want to do my own thing. I want to have my own freedom. I want to kind of like push off the the pressures from other people and make my decisions the way I want to make my decisions. But what happens is we end up being yoked to something that could lead us to not having a very useful or productive field, nor is it an easy yoke to carry. I've talked to people, a lot of young adults, right, who are in their late 20s, and they'll be honest with me and say, Gilbert, you know, I just spent a lot of my early, mid-20s partying, sleeping around, doing whatever I want to do, and I look back and go, man, I, I just really regret that, right? You look back at the field of your 20s and you go, that really wasn't very productive. 
And now I carry a lot more weight and guilt and shame and I have to process that and learn how to give it to God because of what I chose to do. And Jesus' promise to us is this, is yes, I know I'm giving you work, but compared to anything else that you're doing, I promise you it's gonna be easy. I promise you it's gonna be light. Now it's still work, right? It's not like you just show up and now you don't have to work anymore. No, no, it's still work, right? There's still a work element that's part of it, but it's so much easier and it's so much lighter. And it's so much more productive and fruitful and beautiful. You know, a good example of this, I think, is actually my dad. I know, I know you guys don't know him, but he's at like 69, I think. He turned 69 this last year. Um, and he's obviously retirement age, could have taken retirement. Um, actually stepped into it a few years ago with the passing of my stepmom, ended up kind of staying in that. But he looked at his retirement age and he said, you know what, I don't want to just spend my retirement age doing what I want, traveling where I want to travel. He saved the money, he could do it. He could take a flight to Italy if he wanted to go see things. He could spend money however he wants to spend it. He could get a bigger house. He could do all those things. But he looks and he goes, man, I don't want to have my life just be about me. I don't want to have my life just be about what I can have right now in the here and now. But I want to leave a fruitful field behind me that will go beyond me long after I've passed, right? Because you can't carry anything with you from this life. You and I can't do that. We can't take money, riches, things we've accomplished. Um, truthfully, People will, will probably not even really remember our name. I don't mean that in like a rude way, but none of us are probably that important to get remembered. And even if you think that you are, I, I challenge you to try to name the first 10 presidents of America. You can probably name two, right? George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and that's it. Now the history professor here in the room might be able to do it, but they were significantly more important to the shaping of America than we were, but we don't even remember their names. Where are we to think that we'll have our name remembered? And really the most important thing that we can carry with us is the knowledge knowing, hey, we've left a fruitful field behind us. So my dad, retirement age, spends 20 hours a week running a food bank at Butler because he really wants to help people who are impoverished and struggle financially to be able to have enough food to feed their families. And he prays with people and he ministers to them and he talks to them because he wants people to know about the goodness of Jesus, right? That's a good field. That's something worth being yoked to. You don't need me to tell you that there's things in your life that you regret being yoked to. There's things in my life I regret being yoked to, right? But Jesus is saying, hey, if you really want this deeper rest, you got to do the work. And so where I'd like to land things today is I'd like to give us a little bit of a reflective question for us to process. Um, that's this. Have I engaged in God's work? If so, how have I done it? It's really easy to come to church and hear a message and be like, oh, that's good for someone else in the room. But I really want to force us individually to think about this, even myself included. Have I engaged in God's work? And if so, have I, how have I done that? And I'm going to give you some examples of ways that maybe you have, right? Some of you might be in this room and you might be like, yes, I have engaged with God's work. That's great. There might be another reason you're not feeling rest. And again, this is a multifaceted conversation. We could talk about that. I really just want to laser in and talk, talk about this. Have you been doing God's work? You know what God's work is? What he says in his word. Jesus, Matthew 28 says in the Great Commission, go out into all the world and make disciples. So ask yourself, have I made a disciple this year? Have I poured my life into someone else so that they can know Jesus better? Have I made someone a disciple? Have I submitted myself to someone else to be a disciple? Myself included, right? Who am I learning from? Who's investing into me spiritually? Who have I aligned with myself to pour into my life in that way? And am I doing that for someone else? The Bible talks about going out into the world, right? This is why we do missions trips. This is why we, we send people out every single year. It's because God is very clear when he says, I want you to go to the ends of the earth and make sure that people know about the name of Jesus. 
That's the work that we sign up for. It's why we're big about joining a dream team, right? It's why we're like saying, hey, you should serve in kids or you should serve in production or you should get involved in the youth group or with greeting. There's so many different areas. Why do we say that? Because when we do that work, we get access to God's rest. There's something that he releases into our life that is deeper, that is more substantial, and that is more significant than anything else I've ever been able to see. But the, the implication of yoke is work. So my reflective question for you today is this, is have you engaged in God's work? And if so, how, right? I don't want it just to end it yes or no, like, yeah, I think I've done that, or no, I don't think I have. How have you done it? Have you made a disciple? Have you, have you witnessed to your neighbors? Have you, been, have you been praying for them daily to come to know Jesus? Have you made the decision to get water baptized? Have you joined a dream team? Do you, are you signing up to go on a, a mission trip this year even though you keep wrestling with God on whether or not you think you should or you think you have the finances for it? Are you being obedient to the work that he's calling you to do? And here's my promise to you. Listen, I don't wanna add more things to your busy schedule. I don't wanna make you more stressed. What I want you to see is that when we realign the priorities of our life to make Jesus first and our yoking to him, our main priority, everything else takes care of itself, man. Everything else takes care of itself. There's so much more peace. There's so much more steadiness inside of your soul. There's so much more rest. But God's not gonna force you to do it. Again, he says, let me teach you. He's not gonna wrestle you. He's not gonna pin you to the ground and make you listen to him. We have to go to him and say, all right, God, I'm willing to listen, teach me. What's your plan? What field do you want me to go out and plow? How do you want me to be productive? And his promise to us is rest. And with that, I want to release the, the Blairsville campus to your hosts. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. We love you. Um, we'll see you next weekend. So for us in the room here, I want to create a little bit of a private moment between us and God. So can I ask you for this? If you're here for the first time, I'm not going to make you do anything weird, but I just want us to close our eyes and bow our heads for a moment. Um, I, I think privacy is really a beautiful way to kind of just connect with God, push aside distractions, the people maybe being uh, bothersome next to us. It allows us just to engage with just him, him and us. And what I've recognized is that as I've been talking, some of you in this room or some of you online have been thinking, Gilbert, I've never even given my life to Jesus. I like what you're saying about rest, but I've never, I've never given my life to him. I've never said, yes, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and Savior. I'm not even ready to have the yoking conversation because I'm so far from God. I'm doing my own thing. I've been living my own life. I've been acting my own way. I've been living for my own reasons and my own pleasures and my own purposes. And I don't want to do that anymore. I want Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. And so if that's you in this room, this, this moment is for you, right? Again, all eyes closed, heads are bowed. We're not trying to be distracting. We're not trying to expose you or anything. But if that's, if that's you, and you're saying, man, I want to give my life to Jesus. I want him to be my Lord and Savior. Will you raise your hand right now? Just as I'm talking right now. That's you, yeah? Yeah, I see that hand. I see that hand. Thank you. Thank you. Let me pray for those of us in the room and those of us online that made that decision. Jesus, we choose right now to submit ourselves to you. Lord, I pray for each person that's making this decision to follow you. Lord, I pray that you would begin to speak to them. Lord, we recognize our, our sin and our guilt and our inability to fix it on our own. And we come to you, Jesus, and we say, Lord, we cast our sins down and we say, Lord, forgive us. And we thank you for that forgiveness here today, Lord. 
We choose to give our lives to you. We choose to follow you. We choose to submit to you. And we choose to know you today, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Here's what I'd like to do to kind of close. Um, I'd like to invite you first to stand to your feet, if you will. We're going to go into a song here for a moment. And I want us to reflect on what we've heard today in, in his word in Matthew. So for some of you, you might want to sing. For some of you, you might want to sit down and journal. You want to pull out your phone and take notes. But I want, you to, I want you to walk away in a few minutes here with this question answered. How have I engaged in God's work? Right? If so, how have I done it? Because if we, if, we, if we get to one side and we say, yes, I have done it, good. I do think that there's an access to deep rest. And you probably yourself can testify there's a deeper rest in your life as a result of that. But if you go from here and you go, you know what? I don't really think I have. I've just been living for my own thing. I've been living for my own pleasures. I've been living for my own life. I've just been kind of doing my thing. Then my challenge to you will be, go do something about it. Because God has some rest for you, man. God has some rest for you, but we have to choose to unyoke ourselves from our own priorities and our own selfishness and our own desires and our own way to live our lives and yoke ourselves to Jesus to be able to have access to that. So let's just seek God together. Let's sing this morning. Let's reflect on this. And I'll come back up in a moment. If you enjoy this content, please let us know by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also contact us at summitpodcast.church. Remember to share this episode with your friends and on social media. Summit Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Thank you for listening to Summit Podcasts, and we will see you in the next episode.